Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I'm delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Jessica Allegretti, who is in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, where she serves as the Director of the Fecal Microbiota Transplant Program and the Director of Clinical Trials. Today, we'll discuss her recent article, Fecal Microbiota Transplantation in Patients with Primary Sclerosing Cholangitis, a pilot clinical trial, which was published online in the American Journal of Gastroenterology earlier this year and which will be available in print in July of 2019. Dr. Allegretti, let's begin by setting the stage for our listeners. Who is the typical patient with primary sclerosing cholangitis, or PSC? First, thank you so much for having me to discuss this study. PSC, or primary sclerosing cholangitis, is a progressive chronic cholestatic liver disease characterized typically by inflammation and fibrotic destruction of the, the bile ducts. Uh, what we know about PSC is that it often progresses to cirrhosis, portal hypertension, and in certain cases, liver failure. The general population that will get PSC typically is young men, although uh, certainly older patients and women can get PSC as well. But typically, we're talking about a younger population and particularly young men. Great, Jessica. Thank you. And there's this intriguing relationship between PSC and inflammatory bowel disease. Do they always go hand in hand? Yeah, so sometimes. So I'm an inflammatory bowel disease specialist, so this is uh, partly how I got interested in this disorder. And we know that in up to 80% of patients who have PSC, a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease will also be present. However, if you look at the reverse, among all of our patients with inflammatory bowel disease, actually a very small percentage of them will ultimately be diagnosed with PSC. There is also a cohort of patients who have PSE who do not have inflammatory bowel disease, although that is a much smaller subset of patients. So I know from my recollection and the readings, PSC can be pretty hard to treat. What options do we have available right now, and how well do they work? Unfortunately, there still is no current therapy that is uh, FDA-approved for the treatment of PSC. So uh, while this is a very rare disease, it is a really devastating diagnosis to have to give our patients because we still currently have no truly effective therapies. So once we make the diagnosis, we follow patients very closely and we manage symptoms, but we have nothing that actually treats the progression of disease, which is part of the impetus for why we wanted to do this trial. Right. It obviously sounds like we need better therapies. So with that in mind, you know, let's focus in on your study now. We know that FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation is a well-accepted treatment for C. difficile colitis, but that's a disorder of the luminal GI tract. Why did you consider FMT for a liver disorder? What's the biologic plausibility there? Yes, I think when you first look at this, you might think, why would you want to be doing FMT for a liver condition? And there were several pilot studies, some from my group and many from others, that really led to this hypothesis. And so the first is that there is one hypothesis in which the bacteria actually gain access to the liver and the biliary tree through translocation across an abnormal or inflamed intestinal mucosa. Remember that many of these patients also have concurrent inflammatory bowel disease. And so the thought is that you get essentially a chronic portal bacteremia that leads to scarring of the bile ducts. 
We know that in animal models, there has been demonstrations when enteric dysbiosis or alter, you know, altered gut microbiomes have been placed in animal models. It can lead to hepatobiliary inflammation similar to that of PSC. When we've looked in humans, we know that the gut microbiome profiles of patients with PSE is distinct from that of healthy controls and also distinct of that of patients with inflammatory bowel disease alone. And so in, in addition to the gut microbiome, we've also looked at the microbiome of bile in patients with PSC, and we actually see unique microbial signatures in the bile of patients with PSC as well, sort of putting it all together. And while there has been a, a longstanding thought that the bacteria or the gut microbiome may be playing a role in this disease. Antibiotics, which have been trialed uh, as a therapy in this disorder, have really had sort of disappointing outcomes. There has been some success in pediatrics, but really in the adult world, we're not seeing as impressive outcomes or improvement in the disease as we would have liked with antibiotics. And in addition, FMT has really moved forward, not only in treating C. diff, but also in treating ulcerative colitis or, uh, with four now clinical trials, three of which were positive. And so when we put it all together, we thought this really uh, makes sense to trial this in PSC, a disease that seems to have a bacterial sort of origin to its pathogenesis, a disease that's linked to ulcerative colitis, where we know FMT is successful, and a disease that desperately needs new therapies. And so that's really what led to us wanting to trial this. Great explanation for a lot of different lines of evidence maybe supporting this biologic plausibility. So let's think now about your study. Tell us a little bit about the design of your study. So since this was really the first of its kind, you know, an FMT trial in this disease population, this was really designed as a pilot proof of concept trial. And so this was an open label investigator initiated pilot study that was done at a single center, my institution, Brigham and Women's Hospital, where we enrolled patients with PSC who also had a concurrent diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. And it took us about a year and a half to enroll all the patients in this trial. We allowed adult patients, so age 18 or greater. Again, you had to have a confirmation of that diagnosis of PSC for at least six months. You also had to have lab abnormalities, so specifically an alkaline phosphatase level that was 1.5 times the upper limit of normal to enroll. You also had to have no evidence of cirrhosis, at least on your last imaging within the last six months. And so we were looking for patients with, with earlier stage PSC, essentially. Additionally, patients needed to have a concurrent diagnosis of either ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease as long as they had colonic involvement. We did mandate a washout for ursodeoxycholic acid, a therapy that many patients with PSC are still treated with. So patients had to have a four-week washout of that because we didn't want any augmentation of the liver enzyme profiles to be augmented by the urso. We did exclude patients who were treated with any biologic therapy for their inflammatory bowel disease, though we did allow azathioprine and mesalamine uh, as concomitant therapies. Patients then underwent single fecal microbiota transplantation via colonoscopy, and we ultimately used a single donor for every single patient treated in this trial. We then follow, pa followed patients for six months after the fecal transplant, and we performed uh, blood analyses, specifically looking at their liver enzyme profiles, and we collected stool specifically to look at their stool microbiota as well as metabolomic profiling, and we conducted that at week 1, 4, 8, 12, and 24 post-FMT. Again, because this was an initial pilot study, our primary outcome was first and foremost safety. And then secondarily, we looked at efficacy of this therapy, which we defined as a decrease in the alkaline phosphatase level of 50% or more from baseline at any point during the six-month follow-up period.
Wow, a very thorough and comprehensive program there for a pilot study. Now, what were yeah. the results? So ultimately, uh, we enrolled 10 patients in this trial, which was the number we intended to enroll. Among those 10 patients, the mean age was 41 years. Eight of the patients in this trial were male, not surprisingly based on what we discussed about the PSC patient population. 90% of them, or nine patients, had large duct PSC to distinguish it from isolated small duct PSC. Nine of the patients also had concurrent ulcerative colitis, whereas one patient only had Crohn's colitis. Although among all of the patients, they really had no active inflammatory bowel disease, and we were able to confirm that, of course, because we did a colonoscopy with a mucosal assessment. The mean baseline alkaline phosphatase level of the patients enrolled was 489, and six of the patients in the trial were on ursodeoxycholic acid that was ultimately withdrawn prior to the start of the study. When we look at the primary outcome, again, which was safety, there were no related adverse events noticed, and specifically, there were no serious adverse events, including deaths or significant infectious complications. When we look at our secondary outcomes, three out of the 10 patients, or 30%, experienced a 50% or greater decrease in their alkaline phosphatase level over the six-month follow-up period, and again, that was without any additional interventions. However, although likely less important, we also did look at the remaining uh, liver enzyme profiles, and we noted that seven of the 10 patients experienced a 30% or more decrease in at least one of their serum liver enzymes, whether it be ALT or AST, post-fecal transplant, again, over the six-month period. With regards to the microbiome outcomes, we, of course, assessed this, and what we did note was that the composition of the microbiota in patients with PSC certainly differed from that of the donor at baseline. And then after SMT, we noted a much more similar composition to the gut microbiome of the PSC patients to that of the donor as early as the one-week post-FMT check. We also noted that diversity and similarity to the donor, again, how much like the donor did the patient resemble, increased in all the patients post-FMT with changes seen again as early at one week, and this was actually maintained through six months. Importantly, we also looked at what we call engrafting strains, and we define engrafting strains as strains of bacteria that are not present in the patient before the treatment, but definitely present in the donor and present in the patient post-therapy. And so when we look at the frequently engrafting OTUs, or strains of bacteria, in patients post-FMT, we saw that the abundance of these tended to correlate with that decrease in alkaline phosphatase. And so OTUs that were associated with alkaline phosphatase improvement certainly were enriched in at least half the patients where we saw a significant abundance of these engrafting OTUs. And when we looked at the types of bacteria that were engrafting, um, we saw an abundance of those that are essentially short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, which we know to be important for inflammation. Lastly, we looked at bile acid profiles, and unfortunately, we did see no clear effect that the FMT had on stool bile acid profiling. A lot of information from this study, pretty exciting stuff. I'm curious about the way you administered FMT. As you know, there's data from other FMT studies that the method of FMT administration plays an important role in treatment success, and your study involved performing FMT through the colonoscope. As you were thinking about your study and designing it, did you consider using oral capsules or nasojejunal delivery? Yes, we actually deliberated about this quite a bit when this study was designed. I think it's important to remember this trial took 
over four years to actually enroll. So when we actually designed this trial, FMT was still really in its infancy. And this was the first FMT trial I actually ever designed. And at that time, colonoscopy was still really considered the gold standard, uh, especially when we were uh, looking at C. diff treatment where there had been the most data. But still, we thought about long-term, obviously, if this is going to be a therapy that's viable for patients with PSC, colonoscopy administration is not feasible. However, given that this was going to be the first of its kind, we really felt doing it via colonoscopy where there was the most data available and we could additionally do a mucosal assessment on these patients with concurrent IBD, we felt really to be important. We certainly thought about the fact that since PSC affects the biliary tree, which is, of course, connected to the upper GI tract, would upper GI administration be better or more appropriate in this patient population? And I think when we think about next steps, that's certainly something we're considering. Additionally, as we move forward, if we want maintenance therapy, certainly moving into capsule formulations will be more feasible for additional modes of administration, longer-term therapy, which is, of course, what we're hoping to do. Absolutely. Wonderful. So when you finish the study, or actually when you were talking to the patients and enrolling them, what did the patients think about this? What was their response when you first approached them with this kind of really innovative therapy? I can tell you I was blown away by the patient response to this. I think the patients truly have been our biggest advocates. The PSC patient population is a very tight-knit group. They have very strong patient-led organizations, and actually many of the patients found us. They were very excited. As soon as we posted this on clinicaltrials.gov, we got an outpouring of requests from patients really all over the country who are very interested in this therapy. Because, again, you have to remember, this is a diagnosis that usually affects young people, and as of right now, now we have no therapy for it. And so the patients were very excited. And actually, many of them did a lot of advertising for us on Facebook forums and in, in patient groups. And so that's how we actually found several of the patients for this trial was from outreach from other patients who were just excited. And I'm still in touch with all 10 of the patients we treated in this study, and they're very excited about the next steps. Wow, that's really interesting. really shows the power of social media. So yeah. thinking about your results again and enrollment, uh, it's interesting that nine of the patients had ulcerative colitis, as you mentioned, and one had Crohn's disease. Do you think the results would have been different in patients without any existing inflammatory bowel disease or in patients with predominantly Crohn's? I think that the answer is potentially. You know, we actually thought a lot about this again when we were designing the trial. And knowing that this was going to be a very small study, and this is a very rare disease, we wanted it to be as homogeneous as possible to be able to interpret the data as best as we could. So we had initially thought about limiting it to only patients with ulcerative colitis. However, given the rarity of this disorder, we felt that it would be appropriate to expand the patient population to those with Crohn's as well, as long as they had colonic involvement, which is a very similar disease to ulcerative colitis. And as you saw, we only had the one patient, and she had really mild Crohn's colitis. That being said, I think the patient population of PSE without IBD is a really different disease phenotype. And so we really felt strongly about not mixing those two cohorts for this initial pilot study. Now, certainly, if and when we do this again, I would love to include both patients with and without IBD and assess them separately, because I do think that there are interesting differences about the pathophysiology of those diseases. And I don't know if FMT would respond better in those with or without concurrent diagnosis of IBD, I think that that's a really interesting question that needs to be answered. 
Yeah, it is very interesting and really intriguing. And so now you've got these really interesting results in this disorder with this novel therapy. So where do you go from here? So as I mentioned, we've gotten a lot of interest and follow-up from the patients. They all want to know what's next, and I'm happy to report that we certainly will be moving this forward into a more formal phase two trial. What we're hoping to accomplish with the next study is one, as I mentioned, includes both patients with and without IBD to really start to understand uh, that disease phenotype as well, but also get a better handle on dosing. As we've discussed, the question around dosing and donor selection remains really important in this space. And so we will likely be studying more than one donor and also a few dosing regimens as well. I think maintenance dosing is going to be critical. What we've learned from the IBD trials in this space is that for chronic diseases, one FMT is never going to be enough to overcome the chronic dysbiosis we see in some of these inflammatory conditions, unlike C. diff, where one FMT works for most. And so what I'd like to do is develop a study where we have several versions of maintenance therapy using capsules because, of course, it has to be patient-friendly. And so now that we have capsule formulations available, we certainly want to implement that. And so we're currently in the design phase of that right now. And so my hope is that we have something enrolling by 2020. Great. Very exciting news. Looking forward to it. And it sounds like social media may be your best friend there. So, Jessica, this has really been a wonderful conversation for our listeners. Thank you so very much. Any last thoughts for our listeners? I would just say that this is a really exciting therapy. I think we are still learning so much about FMT and the role that the microbiome is playing in several chronic diseases. And while PSC is a rare disease that doesn't necessarily get some of the attention as some of the other disorders FMT is being explored in, it's a really important condition to study. Again, these patients have no current available therapy, so getting better therapies for patients with PSC is really critical. Um, and I certainly want to acknowledge PSC Partners, which is a patient-run organization who actually funded the trial. And so uh, without them, none of this would have been possible. And certainly the patient advocacy groups out there for this really unfortunate diagnosis that many young people do get. So hopefully we'll have more answers for them in the future. Okay. Looking for another great manuscript in about two years to educate our listeners and readers. Jessica, Absolutely. Once again, thank you so very much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure.